Timothy 3 today. Uh, we'll be back in Daniel uh, next week. While we're doing this, you could, you could sit here and say, well, I'm going through a pretty difficult time in my life, and here you are preaching again on overseers and elders. But let me submit to you, as we're making this transition to elders, we have to continue to tether ourselves to the text so that we can be reminded that this is biblical, uh, that we can be reminded that we want to be conformed to the likeness of Jesus corporately, not just individually. But I want you to keep this in mind as well as we go through this text today, that the reality that God has given the church pastors, spiritual leaders, is a very tangible evidence and expression that he cares about your struggles. It's not that we are the deliverers. Pastors, elders are not the deliverers. We're not the saviors. Jesus is the savior, but he uses human agency. And so even as we go through this text, and it may feel like this doesn't apply to you, you need to take that thought captive because this has all the application for you. The reality that God would devote a tax to overseers speaks to the fact that he cares about your crisis. He cares about you. So if you would look with me in 1 Timothy 3, the apostle Paul writes, the saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace and into the snare of the devil. Let's pray. Father, this text is here for the instruction of your people, the church. I pray that you would instruct them well today by your spirit, through this fallible and finite preacher. Give us ears to hear. Give us wisdom corporately as we consider this passage. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. In 1998 and 1999, Judy Peterson completed an internship uh, in her degree at North Park Theological Seminary by walking 4,000 miles across America, from the Pacific Ocean to the Atlantic Ocean. I don't know what degree uh, she was getting that required her to walk 4,000 miles. But I happen to know that at Southern, not many people would get that degree if that's what was required for the degree. But she began her walk by carrying an 80-pound backpack. And by the second day, she recognized she wasn't going to make this journey the way things presently were. Uh, Her legs were throbbing. They were numb. Her feet were filled with blisters. And she was ready to quit. But just when she didn't think she could go any further, a woman in a van stopped by and offered to carry her backpack to the next stopping point. She simply said to Judy, I'll take it for you. And Judy said it was a lesson loaded with meaning. Physically, this woman took a burden that she didn't create. She wasn't responsible for the burden, but she chose to carry, to share that burden for the sake of another's journey. That is an apt metaphor, I think, for the calling of spiritual leaders. You know, scripturally, there are two offices in Jesus' church. The first office is that of overseer. And as we have made this point very clear and plain, we will to do, we'll do that again today for memory's sake. The overseer is the same office as pastor and elder. 
some translations read bishop, overseer bishop, and elder and pastor. It's the same office. That's one office in Jesus' church. The second office is the office of deacon. These are two distinct but inseparable offices and callings. And that's why both are specifically yet distinctly addressed in 1 Timothy 3. You see the qualifications of a deacon in verses 8 to 13. We won't address that today. Today we see the qualifications of the overseer. Most broadly, what is the distinction between the overseer and the deacon? Well, the overseer shares the burden of Jesus' church by leading the ministries of the church. By leading the spiritual ministries of the church. That's what the overseer, elder, pastor does. Deacons share the burden of Jesus' church by facilitating that ministry. That is, by making sure that all the practical, material, the physical needs are met so that the spiritual leadership by the overseer's elders can be carried out. That is the distinction, and that's why they work in concert with one another. That's why a church, in order to function the way God intends it to function, must have both offices working at an optimal level. And so much is at stake. Your spiritual health is largely at stake. Uh, the... Witness the, the order of the church, an order that adorns the gospel of Jesus Christ is at stake. Even the evangelism of the, of the community and the nations is at stake. That's why scriptures like what we see here today are so important as they address the very real issues of spiritual leadership. And what we're going to see today, the most important thing about a spiritual leader is not his competency. It's his character. In fact, we see in verses 1 to 3 that he gets right to the man's character. He says in verses 1 to 3 that this overseer must be above reproach in the church. He must be above reproach among church God's people. Look with me in verse 1. This saying is... Trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Now, this is the second time we have seen this, uh, this saying is trustworthy saying. The first time is in chapter 1, where he says in verse 15, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And now for the second time, he says, this saying is trustworthy. That tells me a couple of things. First of all, by qualifying the statement, this saying is trustworthy, he is telling us you can bank on what I'm about to say. But the second thing he's doing here, he's connecting those two truths. He's connecting the fact that Christ coming to save sinners... And the calling of the overseer are connected. You're sitting here today. Most of you are believers. Some of you are not believers yet. But the reality is for those of you who are believers. You have been saved. But you're still being saved. You've been saved from the penalty of sin. But you are being saved from the power of sin. That's your sanctification. Jesus Christ came in the world to save sinners. He has saved you. He is continuing to save you. And he will ultimately save you. But very dependent upon your sanctification is being under healthy church leadership. You can't do this alone. And so Paul is qualifying us this passage here. But he's also connecting it with the previous text in verse 15 of chapter 1. Now notice here, he speaks about the man who aspires or who desires this work, this task. Now, the reality is, I don't believe that a person can know they're called to the ministry 
until they're already actively involved in the life of a local church. Uh, Sometimes we'll see students come to the college, the Bible college or the seminary, and they've never really been involved in the life of the local church. And I, I believe they're just playing Russian roulette. They don't really know if they're called. The reality is you, don't, you can't know that you're called until a church has confirmed your calling. I believe the scripture teaches that. But there's also the inward call. Not just the outward confirmation of the church. There's the inward call. Uh, William Perkins, the great Puritan preacher, said this. How can you know for yourself whether God wants you to go into the ministry or not? And here's his answer. You must ask both your conscience... And the church. Your conscience must judge your willingness and the church your ability. Of course, when he speaks there of your ability, he's speaking there of your character as well. And so there is a real longing, a desire for the calling, for the for the task. And then you have the confirmation of the church as well. But here's the question. In light of the difficulties of ministry, and let me just tell you, um, there are many difficulties in gospel ministry. You're always on. You're on 24-7. Even when you're on vacation, you are on. Uh, And that is par for the course. That is your calling. In light of these difficulties, why would anyone desire to go in to the gospel ministry? Well, I think you need to consider the context. Over in chapter 2, the scripture says, God desires all people to be saved. Verse 5, there is one God, one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. And this man Jesus gave himself as a ransom for all. And so Paul is contemplating the glories of the gospel here. And he says, God is a saving God. And because he's a saving God, he provides a mediator. Jesus Christ, who came and gave his life that we might be ransomed from sin, death, and the devil. And notice what he says in verse 7. For this, I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. And so every believer is gripped by these realities. If you're a believer here, you're gripped and have been gripped by the fact that God is a saving God and that you have a mediator to God. That's your hope. That's what you delight in. That's what you treasure most uh, than anything, more than anything else in the world. That God is a savior. You have a redeemer, a mediator who gave his life for you to ransom you from your sin, from the judgment of God. Every Christian is marked and delights in that reality. But those that God calls to the gospel ministry, he gives a unique desire. He births an inner desire that is unrelenting to proclaim these truths, to lead others in these truths. It's not that pastors are spiritually superior to other Christians. It's not that we're better than other Christians. It's the calling. It's unique to the office. And the overseer who's called cannot get away from it. The overseer who is called may even try to talk himself out of it. But he can never get away from that call. Now this phrase, office of overseer. It is actually one word in the original language. Episcopos, episcopos. Have you ever heard the the term episcopal? Um, Kind of a bishop-oriented church government. Well, that's the word here. Uh, Epi meaning over, scopos meaning to look, to scope. Uh, An overseer who's one who looks over the flock. Someone who scopes over the flock of Jesus Christ. But recognize that the office of overseer is the same office as elder. He's going to mention elders in chapter 5, verse 17. And these elders in chapter 5, 17, lead and teach the church. Here he is describing the overseer. It's the same office. Let me make that case. 
Over in Titus chapter 1, where Paul is giving the qualifications to Titus, he says this in verse 5, This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained in order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. Now, these aren't just old people. Elders here is an office, all right? This is an office in the church. You are appointing elders. And notice, if anyone is above reproach, here's the qualifications. The husband of one wife, his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. Notice, for an overseer, has he changed subjects? No. He's speaking of elders here in verse 6. And now in verse 7, for that connector, an overseer as God's steward must be above reproach. So elder and overseer is the same office. It's right there in your Bible. Or if you want to consider texts like 1 Peter chapter 5. If you look up there on the board, you ought to see that. In 1 Peter chapter 5. Uh, Peter is addressing the elders there. And he says, I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God. Now, the verb here, shepherd, is the verb for pastor. You could translate this. And the ESV Translation Committee would have made it a lot easier for us if they had done it this way. Pastor the flock of God. So there the elders have the pastoral responsibility for the church. Pastor the flock of God that is among you exercising oversight. There's the verb for overseer. Overseeing. So there's the verb form for the noun overseer. So here in 1 Peter 5, all three terms are used of the same office. Elder, pastor, and overseer. Or if you want to look over in Acts chapter 20. Again, that's on the board. In verse 17, Paul is saying goodbye to the elders in Ephesus. He has spent three years, some three years with them. And he said, now from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And notice in verse 28, here's what he says to the elders. By the way, this is a glorious passage. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Again, the elder and the overseer is the same person. To care for the church of God. There's the verb for pastor. To pastor the flock of God which he obtained with his own blood. Now, here in verse 28, Paul is explaining why uh, the overseership is such a noble office, a noble task. The shepherd of God's church is shepherding what God has purchased in his son Jesus Christ With his own blood. This tells us that the church is God's most precious prized possession on earth. And so in the face of many struggles and pains and issues. And and pressures and warfare and work. The greatest encouragement. The greatest motivation for the overseer, for the elder, for the pastor, is that he knows that in spite of the struggle, in spite of the fact that there seems to be setbacks oftentimes, there seems to be such a slow growth with regard to kingdom growth. In spite of that, he is performing a noble task. In service to what God finds most precious on earth. And because this task, this noble uh, task is so noble. It requires that his character be noble as well. And that brings us to verse 2 of our text. 
It says, therefore, an overseer must be above reproach. Now, I want you to notice that verb, must be. Uh, It's a present tense verb. It describes the person. It describes him every day of his life. It is a present tense verb, and it's speaking to what this man must be. He must be above reproach. Now, that is an umbrella term. Well, I'm going to argue, and Paul will often do that. He will use an umbrella term to describe something in a comprehensive way. For instance, in Galatians 5, he says, the fruit of the Spirit, notice he doesn't say fruits, the fruit of the Spirit is love. And then he fills out what love is. Joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. And I think that's what he's doing here. He is saying the overseer, if he is going to be qualified to lead the church that Christ has purchased with his own blood, the overseer must be above reproach. And we live in a day that's remarkably ambiguous on what character is. On April the 8th, just a couple of weeks ago, there was an actor named Ashton Kutcher who received an award at a university in Iowa. The name of the university was Drake University. And he received the Character Award. Now, in his acceptance speech for his award on character, he, he reflected on how his character was shown. By the way, when you brag on your character, maybe you don't have all that character. But how his character was shown, how he was in that he was able to perform on camera, even after having his name drugged through the mud by the media because of his adultery. Here's what he said. Character comes when those magazines tear you apart for something you may or may not have done. Wink, wink. And you got to go out and perform tomorrow with everyone looking at you because you might have committed adultery. And he received a character award for that. What character is today is ambiguous. Then there's former governor of Alabama, Robert Bentley, who resigned on April the 10th on threat of impeachment because of an adultery scandal he had with his political aide, Rebecca Mason. In 2012, I preached and Heather sang at the First Baptist Church of Tuscaloosa with Governor Bentley sitting on the third row. I thought it was quite an honor. He had such a a great reputation in that church that the governor of the state of Alabama was hearing me preach and hearing my wife sing. He was, at the time, chairman of the deacons of the First Baptist Church of Tuscaloosa. Four-time chairman of the deacons, for that matter. And he was also a long-time Sunday school class. Had a large Sunday school class. But little did anyone know what was going on behind the scenes. I'll tell you this. If I had known, I would have preached a different message. The kind of things that brought him up for impeachment. And in that impeachment report... Text messages were released that his mistress had sent him that referenced both their religious beliefs. Both of them members of First Baptist Tuscaloosa. By the way, just as a side, March of last year, and I know the pastor at First Baptist Tuscaloosa, Bentley and this woman were excommunicated from the church. While he was governor, praise God for faithful preachers. Faith, praise God for faithful churches. But in this, 
these texts that incidentally have love notes back and forth in them, he says, she says to him, you can only be who God made you to be. You honor God by doing what he says you should do. Not what man says you should do. Your purpose, your mission, your ministry, your service is being stolen from you. That's what she said to Bentley. Indeed, there is ambiguity both inside and outside the church as to what character is. And that's one of the central reasons why the overseer must be above reproach. He must be. The messenger matters as much as the message. Even Fox News understands that, don't they? Fox News, a secular station would take their most profitable employee and fire him at the height of his game because of his alleged perverted actions. Why? They know the messenger matters as much as the message. If the messenger loses his reputation, there is no message. The overseer must be above reproach. Now, what does this mean? It certainly doesn't mean perfect. Or no son of Adam must apply. No, it means of blameless reputation. It's irreproachable, observable conduct. It's a repentant man. Last night, I had to, in our family devotions, I had to sit there in front of my children and apologize to them for sinning against them. I had yelled at them. Why? Because they had intruded on my peace and quiet. King me. My servants were not, were not living up to the king's standard. And so I snapped and yelled at them. And I had to confess that to them last night and claim the gospel. And so above approach doesn't mean sinless. It does mean a man who repents before God and before man. And that's his way of life. It's a man who lives in light of even how this book begins. God our Savior and Jesus Christ our hope. A man who's living in light of God the Savior, in light of Jesus Christ the hope, will be a blameless man. Now, he's going to begin to flesh this out in verses 2 to 7. He's the, we'll move through, through this quickly. He must be the husband of one wife. You know, it's interesting that both this list and the list in Titus begins with above reproach. And then the next qualification is the husband of one wife. I think this is referring not to his status. I do not believe this disqualifies single men. Though I do think ideally a man has been tested in the home. 1 Corinthians 7 would indicate that Paul believes a single man can, can serve in a way undistracted that a married man can't. I think this is referring to his character in terms of the common situation of the day. And this is the way things should be in light of that most common of situations. In other words, this man is not an adulterer. This man is not a flirt. This man does not view porn. Period. It's not that he's getting better. He doesn't do it. If he does it, he is presently unqualified. I cannot stand up here and prophetically proclaim the word of God to you and be a pervert. Perverts view porn. This man is above reproach. And oh, how does the church need to hear this today? There was a study, Pure Desire Ministries, did an extensive five-year study. And I'm embarrassed to even say this. 
but I have to say it to awaken some people up. In this five-year study, 68% of, of, of evangelical men admitted to watching porn regularly. 6.8 out of 10. 68 out of 100. 680 out of 1,000. God help us. But even worse in my estimation, because of the responsibility of the office, 50% of evangelical pastors admitted to viewing porn regularly. And the overseer called to be an example, a model, a template of what the Christian is to be. Is called to be above reproach in this area. Notice as well, he is to be sober-minded. Literally, uh, you could translate that temperate or clear-headed. It means balanced judgment, free from debilitating excesses or rash behavior. The man does not act rashly. Self-controlled, that uh, could be translated prudent or sober-minded. It's the ability to keep an objective perspective in the face of problems. It's practical discretion in addressing and dealing with people and problems. Notice as well, respectable. Uh, The Greek word here, I give it to you just because it kind of serves as a word picture for us, cosmios. It's where we get the word cosmos, an ordered universe. This is an ordered man, or rather said, a reordered man. He has a reordered life due to the gospel. It is the outward expression of an inward self-control and sober-mindedness. He's hospitable. Now, what is... What does it mean to be hospitable? It's the horizontal, horizontal, tangible, concrete expression of one who's experienced agape love. That's what hospitality means. Notice as well, he's able to teach. This is spelled out in Titus 1. Notice in verse 9 of Titus 1, he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught. So that he, notice, he must hold firm to this. He's a man of the word. He knows his Bible. He's known as a student of the Bible. So that he may be able to give instruction and sound doctrine and able to rebuke those who contradict it. That's what it means to teach. And this is the one requirement in this list that's not required of all believers. So even as we look at this passage and are reminded of the importance of the overseer, he's really describing what a Christian should look like. This is the one requirement that is not required of all believers. In fact, it's the one requirement that is not required of the deacon. That is, this able to teach is the distinguishing ability of the elder. He's more than just an older man. He's able to teach. He's sound in the faith. You can trust him in his Bible. Notice as well, not a drunkard. Now, now what does it mean to be drunk? It means that alcohol has lowered your inhibitions and it influences you. We were called to have dominion. In Jesus, our dominion has been restored. And the drunkard, rather than having dominion over the created order, is under the dominion of the vine. In fact, unrepentant drunkenness is a grounds for church discipline. 1 Corinthians 5.9 Unrepentant drunkenness is grounds for end-time judgment. 1 Corinthians 6, 9. The drunkard will not inherit the kingdom of God. Notice as well, he's not violent. I love how the Holman Christian Standard Bible translates that. Not a bully. Or some translations, not pugnacious. Not that that's any clearer. 
He's not a fighter. He's not bad-tempered or irritable. There have been those of you in this room that I've had to call and repent to because I had a conflict and I responded in an irritable way. Now that is humble pie when the pastor does that. This man, if he does that, he repents, but his life is not marked by that. There are so many highly charged issues that a pastor has to face. There are so many volatile, highly emotional situations. And if a, if a man is given to violence, even if it's just violence of the tongue, it will come out. It will absolutely come out in the ministry. Notice as well, he must be gentle. This is one of the most attractive and needed virtues. In fact, there is no English word that captures it. Uh, forbearing, kind, and gracious. It's the word used in Philippians 4 and 5 that is to describe all of us. Let your gentleness be made known. The Lord is at hand. Again, these descriptions are describing the Christian. It's used of God himself in the Greek translation of the Old Testament in Psalm 86 verse 5. It's used of Jesus in 1 Corinthians chapter, or 2 Corinthians chapter 10 verse 1. God expects his overseers to shepherd his people in the same way he does. Notice as well, not quarrelsome. Since the first murder... Cain and Abel, God's people, the ones he created, have been fighting each other ever since. But the Christian is to be different. God hates fighting, and that's why the devil uses that as a central method in the local church. When a church fights, when a church is divided, and typically, if you notice that churches don't get divided on what country to devote their mission efforts to. It's nothing that mature. It's over stupid stuff that don't matter in the end. Mature churches disagree, but they don't fight. If you have a church that's great commission-oriented, they don't get caught up into pity anythings. Well, the reason division is so bad and, and negative and and Harmful is that Christ has brought reconciliation through his cross and and resurrection. And when we are divisive, we are bearing false witness against that gospel. We're saying Jesus is not enough to reconcile us. Think about how destructive that message is. And that's why the overseer cannot be drawn into this. In 2 Timothy 2, he says, The Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to all. He's commanding that because there are some people it's difficult to be kind to. Able to teach, patiently enduring evil. Pastors have to endure evil. Why? So that God may grant the evildoer repentance. And that the preacher may not get in the way of that. Notice, not a lover of money. Uh, I guess in certain movements, money and income is a motivation. The implication here is best seen, I think, in Hebrews 13.5, where the, this term is used elsewhere. It's the only other place it's used. And there in Hebrews 13.5, he says, Keep yourselves free from the love of money, but be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Do you get that? The writer seems to be saying there that a love of money and discontentment of the heart is the symptom that we are not content in the presence of God. Keep yourself free from the love of money. Be content with what you have for he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. If I'm discontent... 
That reflects the fact I'm not content in my God. This man must be free from the love of money. He must not love money. He must love God. Those are the two choices. Not only that, he must love his family. Notice in verses 4 to 5, the overseer must be above reproach in his family. He must be above reproach in the church. He must be above reproach in his family. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? The importance of this is highlighted by the fact that more time in this passage is spent on the family than any other place, any other topic in this passage. Uh, And this speaks to both his relationship to his wife and his relationship to his children, though the letter here, the text seems to be stressing his relationship to his children. As Ephesians 6, 4 says, Fathers, bring your children up in the training and the instruction of the Lord. He manages well by raising children who know their Bibles and who love Christ's church. Earlier in Ephesians 5, though, he speaks to his calling to his wife. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with the water through the word to present to himself a a radiant bride without spot, wrinkle, or blemish. That is the man who manages his household well. And if someone were to go to his wife and say, tell me about your husband, she won't roll her eyes. She will say, he is a blameless man. He is in the home what he is in public. And only those that this can be said about is qualified to be an overseer. Of course, to lead a family like this, the overseer must be above reproach in his spiritual maturity. That's verse 6. Notice, he must not be a recent convert or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. A new Christian, now the text doesn't tell us what a new Christian is. I think it's relative to the maturity of the church. He tells Paul or Timothy later to let no one look down on your youthfulness. And so biological age is not the issue here. It's the age of his regeneration or his his life of conversion. A new Christian does not know how susceptible and deceptive his heart really is. Or he does not know yet the craftiness of the evil one as he should. And so he is vulnerable to pride. Let me just tell you how pride can show itself in ministry. When things aren't going well, the preacher senses despair. That's a form of pride. And when things are going well, he goes to the mirror and sings, How great thou art. Both of them are expressions of pride. My besetting sin is the former. Even when things are going well in our church, if there is one area that that we're struggling in, I have the besetting sin of despair and discouragement. I am easily discouraged. But that is a form of pride. And the new believer is highly susceptible to that. And pride, if unchecked and unrepented of, will bring judgment. That's what he's referring to here. And verse 7 says there's another reason he must not be a new Christian. We'll close here. The overseer must be above reproach in the world. New Christians typically don't have good reputations in the world. Why? Because it wasn't long ago they were in the world. So he's connecting the two. That's why he says, moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders. What's an outsider? Let me just speak to this just a moment. The New Testament knows no classification of what we call the churchless Christian. When the Bible describes the outsider, 
He's referring to someone who is outside the local church and Paul assumes that person is not a believer. Now let me clarify here. Going to church does not make you a Christian. No more than going to McDonald's makes you a Big Mac. But one of the evidences that we are Christians is that we love God's people. That's 1 John. That's the entire epistle. And so he's describing here the one who has the reputation, the good reputation with the outsider. Notice, so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. Paul is very concerned that his Christ church and that Christians have a good reputation with the world. Now, there's a sense in which the world can hate you. We will be persecuted, but they must respect us for our integrity, our character, our blamelessness. That's why he says, for instance, in uh, 1 Corinthians 10, give no offense to the Jews nor the Greeks. In Philippians 2, he says, in all that you do, do without grumbling and disputing. Could that be said of you? In all that you do, do without grumbling and disputing so that you will be blameless and innocent children of God without reproach as you live in the midst of a crooked and twisted world that you have been called to be lights shining in darkness. Grumbling and disputing as innocuous as it appears eclipses the gospel. And that's why our reputations are so crucial. In fact, he, in chapter 6, will will speak to the slave. And even the slave is to submit in such a way to his master. Not that he's endorsing slavery. He's not. But there's something bigger at stake. He says the name of God. And so it stands to reason... If this is true of the church, it's true in a heightened sense of the overseer. He must have a good reputation with the outsider, those outside the church. The church's witness and credibility is at stake. John Christensen in the 5th century says this. He says, though Paul and the apostles were often persecuted, they were never brought up on moral charges. Isn't that interesting? They were slandered as deceivers and imposters on account of their preaching. And this because they could not attack their moral characters and lives. For why did not one say of the apostles that they were fornicators or unclean or covetous persons, but that they were deceivers, which relates to their preaching only? Must it not be said that their lives were irreproachable? I love that statement. That's in the 500s. Paul says if he's discredited, he will fall into disgrace and into the snare of the devil. Snare there literally is a trap. It was used to trap birds. And the fact that the devil is mentioned twice in this passage is remarkable. Twice. Beware lest you think you're called to be an overseer. Jesus made it clear that there would be warfare on the church. He said, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. It would seek to do so. There's warfare on the church. And here the fact that he mentions the devil twice in a passage aimed at spiritual leadership reflects the reality of the unique warfare that leaders experience. And that's why these leaders ultimately must be men characterized as those who walk in the armor of God. We must have the right leaders. We're going to talk more about that tonight. We must have the right leaders in place. Men called to this office. Men who are above reproach in their church, in this church. Men who are above reproach in their families, their homes. Men who are above reproach in their spiritual maturity. Men 
who are above reproach in the world. One more thing. The fact that Paul addresses the world here speaks as well to those this morning that aren't yet Christians. Paul is concerned that pastors have a good reputation with the world. Why? Because Jesus came to save the world. He came to save sinners. And the fact that he would address the world here speaks to his care and concern for you. And how does Jesus save sinners? Well, he saves sinners first as the preachers, the overseers, the leaders faithfully present and proclaim the gospel of salvation. What is that gospel of salvation? It is this. We are all messed up radically. We are perversively, comprehensively messed up. The way we think, the way we feel, the things we're devoted to, the things that make us happy, the things that we find funny, the things we find interesting, the things that we find boring. Our bodies themselves are aging and decaying. Everything about us is messed up. We are broken individuals. We are guilty and corrupt. We cannot help ourselves. We are dead in our trespasses and sins, following the ways of the world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air. And if you're wondering here, why can't I not fix my situation? Why not keep repeating the same old sins? It's because you can't help yourself. And that is the glory of the gospel. Jesus Christ came to save sinners. He uses faithful preachers to do that. But he is in the saving business. And I love the fact that Paul addresses the world here. If you're not a believer here, you're a part of the world. And he came to save sinners like you. And all you have to do is is confess that, to recognize that. I am a sinner. I am guilty before a holy God. And God has made provision for my sin. He sent his son to take the sin and the judgment for me. And his son was raised from the grave that you might have pardon. Pardon for every sin you've ever committed. Pardon for the sins you are even presently committing or will commit. That's why Paul addresses the world there. God gives the church pastors because he cares for the church, but he cares for the world as well. Ponder that this morning. Let's pray.